Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people who are known today as the Stockbridge-Muncie community. I'm Kellen McPherson. And I'm David Moore. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with the Albany School Board of Education's yearly report. Then Sina Basilahickey interviews Nancy Calsaldo about her book, When the Water Runs Dry. Nancy's work deals with local water conflicts and justice issues. Later on, Eunice Young speaks with Dr. Omar Ogby about her vision and development of a nonprofit organization, Chasing Health. After that, we have a live interview with Julian Adams about the nomination of a section of Lansingburg to the state and national list of historic places. Finally, in this bucket, poetry bucket segment, Tom Francis speaks with Aaron Irvin, also known as Algorithm, that's A-L-G-O-R-H-R-H-Y-T-H-M, about writing, work, and teaching. But first, here are the headlines. Waterville Mayor Charles Putschel will face a primary challenge this year from a fellow Democrat, D- Tim Cavanaugh, a county coroner as the they via to lead the heavily Democratic city of 10,375 people. The Times Union reports that court documents in the deadly Schoharie limo crash criminal case reveal Schoharie County District Attorney Susan Mallory worried that defendant Naman Hussein would try to flee the United States before his May 1st trial on homicide charges. A judge rejected the plea deal that Mallory had offered the defendant for no jail time. He now faces up to 10 years if convicted. Ulster, Ulster County has joined Columbia and Greene counties in the list of counties Counties the Center for Disease Control has rated as high for COVID-19 community transmission level. Albany and Rensselaer counties have a medium transmission level, while others in the capital region are rated low. The Gazette reports that Schenectady has been selected as one of the three cities statewide to receive federal funding for new juvenile delinquency prevention pilot program. The program is designed to reach youth who encounter law enforcement most frequently in these communities, including homeless and runaway youth and minority children. Power Plug Plug Power has opened a new 125 million green hydrogen fuel cell factory at the Vista Technology Park in Slingerlands. The new facility is expected to create 1,600 jobs on top of the more than 1,400 plug employees already in New York. That's it for the headlines. For those just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call 518-272-2390. At the first meeting of, the tw- of 2023 for the Albany School Board of Education, Cecily Wilson-Turner, the superintendent for the city of Albany, gave her yearly report with the help from two school principals and some students. Good evening and Happy New Year. As we began the 2023 portion of our school year, we have several recent student highlights and accomplishments that I would like to recognize. At William S. Hackett Middle School, in case many of you did not know, 
An experiment proposed by a team of eighth grade students will travel to the International Space Station. This spring, astronauts on the space station will perform the effect of microgravity on rice. Last fall, eighth graders in the district's three middle schools worked in teams to design an experiment that tests the effect of microgravity weightlessness on a particular scientific variable. On the sports scene, our undefeated high school girls basketball team climbed to number 14 in the state ranking this week after three impressive wins during the holiday break. The Falcons posted victories over three other state ranked teams and were nine and zero on the season. So let's go Falcons. We also had the great pleasure right before the holiday break of hosting our annual exceptional students reception in person for the first time in three years. Some are exemplary in their academics or extracurricular activities or community service. All, however, are shining examples of the thousands of exceptional young people that comprise our school district. Also, as we bring 2023 in and we look forward to our success in the year to come, let's be reminded of what we have achieved in 2022. We have grown over the past year and we have a lot to celebrate. We celebrated an 82% graduation rate and a narrowing of the achievement gap among our diverse demographics. We celebrated the implementation of an equitable feeder pattern at the middle school level. We celebrated the expansion of STEM programs and activities in our curriculum K-12. We celebrated the first hydroponics freight farm in the capital region at Albany High School. We are encouraging our teachers and students to learn and grow through local and international travel, expanding their opportunities beyond the capital region. We are engaging in meaningful professional development to build our leadership capacity and enhance the delivery of quality instruction with equity at the core of our policies, practices, procedures, and the decision-making process. We continue to examine our unconscious bias and implement the best practices of relentless equity as we focus on choosing courage over comfort, challenging the status quo, having high expectations for ourselves and our scholars, and understanding that equity is not a fad or a buzzword. It is how we should do business on behalf of our scholars and our families. We built and celebrated our district and our school-based equity teams. And most importantly, we have empowered our student equity teams at each school, which gives life to student voice at all levels. We have celebrated the overall progress of our transformational rebuilding Albany High School project, opening an array of new spaces as the seven year project moves forward to put our students and teachers on the cutting edge of today's educational experiences. Last summer, we celebrated the completion of the academic spaces at North Albany Middle School, one full year ahead of schedule, saving hundreds of thousands of dollars for the district. And we are looking forward to celebrating the upcoming completion of that outstanding project with a new auditorium this spring. Last spring, 
we celebrated record voter approval for our school budget with 78% of our public saying yes to our financial plan for the current school year. It was the seventh time in the last eight years that 70% or more of our voters supported our budget proposal. This list of our accomplishments is long and there's much more for us to feel good about as we continue to focus on building and sustaining a cycle of continuous improvement in all areas of our operations, despite the challenges that we face. We will continue to build back from the pandemic. I am confident that we have put the systems and structures in place that will allow us to continue to meet our challenges together, both as a district and in partnership with our diverse community. The City School District of Albany is and will continue to be an exceptional place for students to learn and grow and for each member of our faculty and staff to continue to our student success. I challenge you to remember that negative things happen and negative things will happen. However, it is our responsibility to address the negative, learn from it and move forward in a more positive direction. It is important for our organization not to perseverate on the negative as it prevents and stifles growth and opportunity as an organization. When we accentuate the positive, we provide opportunities for our scholars to dream and to dream big, to aspire to greatness and to see the difference that they can make in the positive change that they can be in our schools, in our community and in our world. When we accentuate the positive, we provide hope, hope for a stronger, better, and brighter future. It is my pleasure to introduce Jody Comerford, who is the principal at Albany High School. Thank you, everyone. We are very grateful to be here tonight to represent Albany High School. Joining me this evening is our class of 2023 valedictorian and salutatorian. We will be um, hearing from them a little later in tonight's presentation. Attendance, I think, has really been our toughest uh, recovery from COVID. We have had a very difficult time with um, getting our attendance rates up at the high school. We have implemented a number of supports this year to try to get our attendance increased. So we do a lot of interventions here, um, our weekly attendance team meetings, and then some MTSS social workers that um, we are afforded this year to assist in that work. And without further ado, <laughs> we have our uh, valedictorian who is going to talk about his experience at Albany High School, Neil Chitori. Thank you, Principal Comerford. Good evening, everyone. I'm honored to be the valedictorian of the class of 2023 at Albany High School. Albany High School has set me on a path to success throughout my high school years. I've been fortunate to take a vast amount of AP courses offered by the school, which has built my worth ethic and the responsibilities I have in my day to day life. Outstanding teachers and other faculty at the high school have made my classes entertaining and easy to understand as they work hard to make sure every kid has an equal opportunity to attain a valuable education. The high school also offers numerous sports and other activities. As a member of the cross country and track and field teams, as well as the student help desk, I've been able to develop leadership skills as well as collaboration skills that I'll be able to use in my future endeavors. My peers and classmates have also made my time at Albany High School enjoyable. Other students who come to class ready to learn every day motivate me to work harder and raise my morale. 
Albany High School made me realize my passion for mathematics and I will be studying applied mathematics and statistics at Stony Brook University, hopefully in the Honors College. I will also be running Division I cross country and track and field at the university. None of this would have been possible without the Albany High School environment, and at Albany High School, I've developed my falcon wings, and I'm prepared to soar to my next destination. Thank you. And now we will have Dr. Stacy Dobbs, who is the principal at Delaware Community School. So welcome. You're in for a treat. What you're going to see right now is a group of students in Miss Canto's fourth grade class. This is a snippet of a wrap that the students created. Um, so fourth grade right now is focusing on a kindness campaign and really focusing on the fact that kindness matters. And so they worked with the teacher and another another hall monitor in our building to create this wrap. This is class 301, and we made a rap song to put kindness into the babies. B! Always be respectful at all times. B! Always be safe in the whole life. B! Always be kind to have rhymes. Be responsible, then you're gonna shine. B! Always be respectful at all times. B! Always be safe in the whole life. B! Always be kind to have rhymes. Be careful and responsible, then you're gonna shine. B! For upcoming Board of Education meeting dates, for past meeting minutes, and other information, go to albanyschools.org. Author Nancy Costeldo writes about international, national, and local environmental justice issues, including PFOAs found in the Post and Kill water supply. Sina Bazilahiki asked about her work covering water issues. Welcome back to the program, author Nancy Costeldo. I'm so happy to be here today. Well, thank you for joining us. As we are thinking about where we are this year, you and I were discussing environmental justice. And you have a lot of work, <clears throat> a lot of books that you've written that have allowed you to really take a deep dive into this issue. What are some of those books that address this issue? Well, I, I touch on it in many books. This year, um, I spoke a lot about it in my book called When the World Runs Dry, and it's about the water crisis around the world. Previously, I had also um, delved into the topic with food security. So water security, um, food security, all of those desperately needed things that, that we need in our lives do impact a lot of different communities. And we're seeing it with water every day. This book brought you to many different corners of the world. What were some of the things that you learned? Um, for this book, I had some, some differences, as well as diving into how water is being used uh, creatively to recharge aquifers in Tucson, Arizona, which was an absolute pleasure and finding out all of the great ways that they're utilizing their water resources, their very minimal water resources. I also went to Flint, Michigan. Not mm -hmm. as much 
not as not as enjoyable, I will admit. Uh, very, very difficult to hear the stories of people who are really suffering through the water crisis. And there was definitely um, a lot of people there that had been impacted. But also, I went to, to Colorado, where there was also a community impacted through fracking. And that was a very prime example of environmental injustice. Both of those cases were, and that's always difficult to to listen to and to experience. In uh, in Colorado, for example, there was a, a fracking site that was going to be uh, installed, uh, dug uh, nearby a, an affluent uh, elementary school. And the parents of that elementary school all stood up and, and fought this and were able to have that site that would have impacted their children in that elementary school on many different levels move. And where did they move? They moved right, right in view of the playground of a elementary school that um, was in a, a more challenging neighborhood that had a population that had a lot of folks that English wasn't their first language. Um, so they weren't able to understand all the meetings and have all of the um, the ability to, to fight it. And of course, they, they ended up with this fracking site right outside their playground uh, for this elementary school. And it's a prime example of how these things, you know, the old not in my backyard premise is sometimes spills over to, to folks who can't always fight for themselves and, and move these things to other locations. And in the case in Flint, Michigan, and also in Newark, New Jersey, with the lead water, those were also yes. in, in low-income communities that were primarily- Exactly. Affected. And in Flint, Michigan, that was a situation where the entire city was impacted by, by this crisis. And it was in, unfortunate for everyone that lived in this in the city. However, the neighborhood ward that was most affected was the area that um, was uh, economically challenged community that was separated from the rest of the city by a highway. Mm -hmm. And highways often cut off communities and very often they're lower income or black and brown communities. And they often are the, the ones that experience this environmental, these environmental problems at a greater rate. Mm, and that highway is an example of urban development from the 60s. That yes, just exactly. Yeah. So you have people who really emphasized class differences. Exactly. A lot of people when I was doing the book had said to me, why didn't they just move? They had a problem. Why didn't they just move? Well, think about that. That that was how could people just move when they lose all the equity in their homes? they basically can't resell their home if they have no water and the water uh, is poisoned. So the water has destroyed all their inner pipes, all of their inner, their appliances in their home. And then folks are saying, why don't you just move? Um, with what money are they going to move to another location? Uh, and, and the process, of course, went over for so many days, months, weeks, it just, you know, it just went on and on and on. So these folks had to take showers in nearby gyms and because they were using just bottled water. Now in the more affluent areas of a city that is impacted like this, 
they have the means. They could possibly move or they could possibly um, have water delivered to their homes. They can they have the means to do these things. So uh, it's it's difficult to watch these situations develop across the country and across the world in many of these spots. And you being from part of the capital region, how do you see these issues being reflected in this community, Troy, beyond? Well, one of the of the areas that I also covered was Husek. And they, of course, were suffering from a different, different type of water crisis. That was the pollution of PFAS. And those chemicals were, were dumped illegally uh, many years ago. Uh, and impacted that area. Now that community was without a pediatrician to help these kids that were in this in this small rural community. Does that so, also mean that it took a while to actually diagnose what these issues were? It actually took one individual who who delved into this and found that there was a problem to begin with. It was one community member, and then it took a long time for the government recognizing that the problem existed, it, it became a super fun site. But with this type of, with PFAS uh, poisoning, there has to be ongoing health data um, measurements. There has to be testing to make sure it's not something that just goes away or you, you don't just take a pill and it goes away. Um, it's the same thing with lead poisoning. These things, lead poisoning stays in your system. The PFAS does go away eventually, but you you can't have any more poisoning in the meantime. So you need ongoing health. You need the ongoing care. And, you know, some of these communities just don't have that. We've been focusing on your book, When the World Runs Dry, Earth's Water in Crisis. But do you want to also mention some of the many other books that also look at environmental justice? So in uh, in a new book that just came out in November uh, called Buildings That Breathe, I talk about Echo gentrification, and that's a situation where an area in a in a city perhaps is a lower income area is leveled to put in a a green building or a park, and we've seen that over the over the years in many many locations, and how that's trying to be how that's being countered by some green development, and how uh, we're trying to move ahead to avoid dislocating people from their homes, uh, but rather creating green areas for those folks to enjoy. Parks, of course, don't just belong in um, highbrow neighborhoods, so to speak. Um, they belong to everybody. And it, it talks about green spaces uh, throughout uh, urban areas. And we will have you back in the spring to talk about a lot of your work that looks at farms, seeds, and gardens. So when we hear about water insecurity happening in places, how how do listeners take that in? What can we do? And uh, what would you like them to take away from it? I would love our listeners to just be aware of the world around them and notice that when projects are going into certain areas, what's happening to their community, but also what's happening to their neighbors and neighboring communities, to be aware of, of all of our neighbors in all the different communities, not just in your own backyard. Thank you so much, Nancy Costaldo, for joining us on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thanks for having me. For more information on Nancy's work, you may visit her website, nancycostaldo.com. For those just tuning in, I'm Kalen McPherson. 
And I'm David Moore. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If, if you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Find today's story and more at Media Sanctuary. We now have the pleasure of a live interview with Julian Adams. Julian will speak to the recent action by Governor Hochul to nominate a western portion of Lansingburg to the state and national registers of historic places. Good evening, Julian, and welcome. Thank well, you, David. Will you tell us a, a bit about your, your background and how you ended up here in New York at, with the Office of Historic Preservation? Well, winding up here is an interesting title. <laughs> I grew up in Georgia, actually, and got a master's in historic preservation from the University of Georgia. Had a hard time finding a job in the South and finally wound up getting one in New York State. Thought I'd be here for two years, and 34 years I am still here. Um, I chose preservation as a career because historic buildings, the history embodied in them, the stories embodied in them. It's also the way they represent our history physically appeal to me very much. I always call them books written in wooden stone. Um, as well as collections of them as well, like entire libraries. That's a beautiful image. What is your work with the New York State Parks and Historic Preservation, and what do they do for New York State? Well, I work for the New York State Historic Preservation Office, also known as the State Historic Preservation Office, or SHPO for short, for 33 years. I retired in October 2021. Um, that office actually is in, uh, embodied all the federal and state preservation programs that are put together by New York State and the United States government. And there's quite a few of them out there. The primary goal of the State Preservation Office is to help communities, cities, towns, villages, counties, and even the entire state understand what historic resources are out there and move to try to recognize them, understand them, research them, and in certain cases, provide incentives for the rehabilitation or restoration or reuse so they don't fall into disrepair or vanish. Much of the State Preservation Office's work derives from the National Historic Preservation Act of 1966, which was a direct reaction to the urban renewal disasters, which we have plenty of in the Capital District, including looking at the Empire State Plaza and the 787 highway along the river. We've been interviewing people about the urban renewal period in the, in the 60s, and that's impacted the city of, La or the area of Lansingburg. Absolutely. And recently the governor yeah. nominated this section of, of Lansingburg to the register. Uh, what was at stake in, in the area that prompted this kind of response? Well, the National Register listing, actually listing on the National Register of Historic Places, is an honorific. It provides no protection or to those resources, and that's one great misunderstanding of the National Register. It is a way to understand, research, identify, and, and put down in a nomination form the history of a building, a district, an area. We can do thematic district uh, listings of things across the state, such as post offices, things such as that. But primarily it's an honorific, but as part of that honorific uh, designation, there are benefits, credits, and grants available to buildings and properties listed on the National Register that are not available to anyone else. 
Primarily, we have things such as federal and state tax credits that provide a return on a private entity's or commercial entity's investment into that building to put them back in use. There are also grants available to municipalities and not-for-profits, including church buildings, that are only available to properties listed on the National Register of Historic Places. So the money goes where the mouth is. You know, we put something on the National Register and we also use that designation to bring benefits to help level the playing field between that area and new construction. One great problem we've had in America, and this is becoming more and more obvious and more and more writing and uh, teaching has been done about it, is the car culture, how it's ripped our communities apart and also plowed through our communities and somewhat uh, dissolved the community base that a small urban area has. So what we're looking to do with these preservation uh, designations and the incentives that come forward is to, well, to borrow a phrase from, of all people, King Charles the second, <laughs> I believe he is now, to reweave the urban fabric because it certainly was ripped to shreds many times by the interesting car-centered urban planning of the 1950s and 60s. So our goal is to put those places back to use. Sometimes I tell people, people always ask what I did for a living. It was very hard to answer them. And I finally came up with one thing. I like to help turn the lights back on <laughs> because we have areas that need that investment. How long did it take for this process to uh, mature and develop and were there obstacles along the way? It took quite a few years. I think maybe within the last five years, uh, myself and a couple of staffers went around the Second Avenue area of Lansingburg, which was always a historic commercial core there. That's where some of the earliest buildings in Lansingburg are, to try to understand what kind of district would be possible there. We were looking at properties that were primarily commercial in nature because the most beneficial tax credits are for commercial rehabilitations. That's rental residential, business, anything that makes an income for an investor. There are rehabilitation tax credits at the state and federal level that, as I said earlier, provide up to 40% return on the investment in the property. Who are some stakeholders who are interested in, in moving into this effort and project? Well, I think one thing that happened is downtown Troy has been very successful with these credits. About 10 years ago, the State Preservation Office decided to open, reopen the National Register district listing there, which are collections of buildings that tell a story. In this case, the downtown of Troy was telling a story through its buildings. Reopened that nomination and added like 300 extra buildings to an older nomination and something like 50 to 60 rehabilitation projects have been enabled in downtown Troy. Many of the things that people look at and go to and shop and eat at and just see in downtown Troy were beneficiaries of this listing and the credits it brought with it. And we were looking at how can we do that in Lansingburg. There's a commercial core in Lansingburg that people used. And in fact, it's actually older than the commercial core of downtown Troy because it was a separate village before Troy was even founded. So we were looking to see how can we bring those incentives that have done very good work in downtown Troy, how can we bring them basically up the river? And the first place we were looking for was that commercial core that we could identify that had integrity of buildings and design, rich history, and make a difference in that area by putting that overlay on there. So about five years ago, we walked through the area, um, made some maps and worked with the city. Of course, wheels of government can turn very slowly, but also they get where they need to go eventually. And the city hired a preservation consultant to do the work, to do the research, and prepare what we call the nomination to the National Register of that area. The place has to hold together historically, architecturally, and otherwise just physically as well. You can't make great leaps over areas and you have to have a common story in the area. And that commercial area and the early buildings, including residential buildings associated were the story that was being told. 
So the whole goal is literally to bring incentives and hopefully more investment up into this part of Troy, which has had a long history of disinvestment. Are there opportunities for entrepreneurs to develop uh, businesses or for homeowners to acquire properties? Absolutely. The com there are two credits for New York State. There's the commercial credit, commercial rehabilitation credit, which is for income-producing buildings, okay? So you'd have somebody setting up a shop, a restaurant, a, a rental property, a multi or single rental, whatever they need. There's also, lucky for New York State, a residential tax credit for homeowners that have buildings in the district that contribute to the district, which they tell part of the story. And that gives a 20% credit that may be taken every year if certain criteria are met. It's a way to enable people to fix up their homes, stay in their homes, add to the value of their homes, because as we know, a lot of American personal wealth is bound up in our houses and our residences. And we're trying to make sure that people who have buildings and want to stay where they are can invest in them and also add to their uh, uh, what do you want to call it? generational wealth in those buildings, as well as planting the flag that we are still here and that is a stable neighborhood. There are many churches in Lansingburg and Troy <clears throat> with congregations that are dwindling and their properties expensive. Are there strategies or opportunities for these communities to repurpose their buildings? Absolutely. Let's start with churches first. Churches that are active, there are opportunities through the uh, um, consolidated funding application process in New York State to take part in what's called the Environmental Protection Fund monies. Now that is for repair, not for things that enable the practice of religion, but basically the building, keep the roof on, keep the windows tight, with things such as that. There's also um, other grants in New York State through the Sacred Sites Program out of the New York City Landmarks Conservancy to help people with things such as how do you understand your HVAC, how do you, how do you understand your handicapped accessibility, anything that keeps the building in operation. We also have a lot of buildings that have uh, church buildings that have a lot of extemporaneous or no longer usable buildings. So those are being turned actually across the state, not only in, in uh, Troy, into things such as housing, uh, live workspace, live uh, artist studios, offices. We've had quite a few of those across the state as educational buildings have basically been grown out of as the congregation goes down. And they've been used using the tax credit. St. Augustine's up in Lansingburg, the convent area, has been turned into such a housing, uh, affordable housing project using the credits. Well, that will certainly help bring a resident community into the area, and that would help with commercial opportunities is that a, a vision that is percolating within the community? I would hope so. I know I've had some conversations about that in Lansingburg because a lot of these churches, well, these churches are major landmarks in our communities. They represent the heart and the soul, the blood, sweat, and tears, and dollars and cents of the people that built the community. They are landmarks of the area, and they should remain. And sometimes, as we know, the demographics change and aging uh, populations change. And again, as I said, the buildings kind of, people kind of grow in, in into the out of the larger area into smaller pieces of the building. It's able to keep those buildings in the landscape, provide a community resource, and also provide everything from housing to office space. It's a great way to put investment back in the community while not losing the landmark buildings that are there. How, how could our listeners become informed or involved in participating in this renovation? I think you would want to contact the State Historic Preservation Office. It's conveniently located on Peebles Island State Park, really just not too far from where we're sitting right now. They have a team of historians and technicians and architects and landscape architects and anybody else who can help you understand the program. I now work for a firm out of Buffalo, uh, Carmina Wood Design, doing preservation projects elsewhere. Um, but there's plenty of people at that office who can help you understand how these programs work. And particularly with Lansingburg, we want to get some successful projects going there to show the way. 
Julian, are there any other observations or comments you or questions have? Questions you, you want to add? Oh, I don't know. I just, I, uh, I, I think I, people ask how I got into this field. I was probably the only 12-year-old going to the downtown area going, why are these ripping up those windows? They're perfectly good. And building, using my building blocks to historic buildings. So it's a passion of mine, and everybody who works in preservation, we didn't wind up accidentally. We found it, we found it and found our way into the program and into the field. Julian, thank you so much for participating in, the, in this interview. I think many of our, our people walk the streets and, and see and become despaired mm -hmm. and to have a, a, a process and support of the state certainly seems an opportunity for people to get a different vision and, uh, and a different hope. I hope so as well. Thank you, David. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for joining us again and telling us more about what's going on with the Western Portson of Lansingburg to, uh, to get that registered for the state and national registers of historical places. For our third segment, Dr. Omar Agabi works for Chasing Health, which is a nonprofit organization that provides health care services to underserved black and brown communities. Mm -hmm. Hudson Mohawk Media correspondent Eunice Young spoke with Dr. Omaragi about her experience that led up to Chasing Health and the roles of medical care for equal patient treatment. How can one's community serve people's health? We will hear now the segment. This is Eunice Young, and today I'm talking to Dr. Omaragi. Welcome, Dr. Omaragi. You recently visited the People's Health Sanctuary with your organization, Chasing Health. Can you tell me a bit about yourself and what Chasing Health is? Yes, thank you so much, Eunice, for um, inviting me to your platform. It's a pleasure to be here. I am Dr. Tina Omorobe. I am a family nurse practitioner by profession. I'm also the founder and chief executive officer of Chasing Health. Give you a little background about myself. I was raised and born in Nigeria. I came to this country when I was uh, in my early 20s. And I've been in the United States for more than 30 years now. I have I'm married and I have three uh, beautiful children and just became a grandmother of two beautiful and some twin boys. <laughs> and um, in terms of uh, Chasing Health, Chasing Health is a nonprofit organization under 501c status. What that simply means is that uh, the donations that we get are all tax exempt. The organization was started in 2016 and it's run by nurse practitioners and nurses who are experts in the field of what we do in bringing um, healthcare um, um, services to people in underserved communities. And we do that by providing health education on hypertension prevention, chronic disease management, and blood pressure screenings. And majority of the people that we do see in the community are in the black and brown communities just because most of the um, chronic diseases that we focus and teach about, uh, they are affected by this uh, disease, likely due to healthcare disparity, lack of access to care, and other social and economic factors. Is there anything about your personal experience or perspective that made you want to work on this issue and the way you're doing it through Chasing Health? Yeah, good question. Yes, there is. Um, as a healthcare provider, um, I see the impact of uncontrolled hypertension in the lives of the patients that I take care of every day and the number of patients that have stroke due to uncontrolled hypertension and disability from the disease. I also uh, personally developed high blood pressure when I was pregnant with my second child. I had preeclampsia 
um, that was when I was diagnosed with hypertension. And uh, also last year, I lost my uncle to a heart attack uh, due to uncontrolled hypertension. So these are some of the reasons why I'm taking a stand against high blood pressure. Uh, and I think one of the greatest problem with high blood pressure is that majority of people have the disease, but they do not know because they don't have symptoms. Um, and, and this is the reason why it's called uh, the silent killer. Um, yeah, it is really a bad, terrible disease. Thank you so much for sharing such a personal story of yours. And I know that you take preventive care and education to places like beauty salons, barbershops, and churches, meeting people in the communities where they live and work. How do you think a place like the People's Health Sanctuary can supplement more traditional health care that happens in doctors' offices and hospitals? Yeah, thank you. Um, I think uh, People's Health Sanctuary is a very unique place. I was there, like you had said earlier. Um, it's a unique place and it's also a safe place for people from every walks of life to come uh, to get uh, additional information about how to manage their health and, and to actually attain uh, uh, a well-being of, of their lives and to have um, uh, uh, good health, 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 health uh, status. Uh, so people can actually come to uh, the um, people's uh, health sanctuary if they have struggles or any challenges with their health and not and not feel that they will be judged or uh, disrespected. Um, the head, the heads, uh, the people's health sanctuary can also provide education in uh, lifestyle modification on lifestyle modifications and weight management, uh, body movement, like we had the last time we had the African dance there blood pressure screening, and so much more can happen in the in uh, in this sanctuary. Uh, I see the people's health, though, as uh, the people's health sanctuary as a place where conventional medicine and integrative uh, remedies are put together or instituted to or utilized to transform people's health and uh, bring uh, also uh, uh, a better um, outcomes for the people's health. So you've also mentioned about having lifestyle educations provided. Um, is there anything else as an example besides those um, physical movements that were part of the Chasing Health program? Yeah. So we. Um, so you remember you had talked about uh, some of the things that you know. Why I think that um, the people's health, what they can supplement, right, in terms of the conventional or traditional healthcare that we have now. So the people's health can do things like uh, meditation, right? People can come there and learn how to meditate, and people can probably also come in if they had, you know, prayer needs, um, and or if they uh, need like a yoga exercises, you know, those kind of stuff. This place can provide, and also even uh, just having um, someone to listen to the way you think um, your care should be driven. So I think the people's head is a place where people can come and be themselves and also to be able to just say, you know, how, what they believe uh, treatment should look like for them. Furthermore, from a medical care perspective, what improvements can be addressed when it comes to equal patient treatment? Yeah, that's a very uh, important and good question. I think that uh, providing equal care to people is vital to all people from all walks of life, no matter their creed, no matter their cultural values and beliefs and uh, or, or social economic status. 
for us to be able to improve uh, patient equal care, we must first, you know, uh, uh, provide um, respect and dignity for all people. And uh, providing access to care is very, very important. Bringing that care like we do at Casing Health to the people where the people actually have, uh, have needs for such care. So bringing uh, ed care access to the people is important. And also um, providing uh, the, the people that you see that we meet in the community, the ability for them to also communicate their needs and why the provider listens. Uh, so developing a listening ear is very important. I would you know advise that. Um, but we can also um, provide both, you know, like uh, conventional and integrative medicine, which I think sometimes in the setting is not really talked about that much. We are more into the traditional care, let's, you know, talk about the medications and all of that. But I think if we can incorporate integrative care into it, whether that person believes in prayer, whether they believe that, you know, not taking medication might be it, maybe having them eat a healthier diet, you know, teaching them how to refrain from uh, alcohol, you know, uh, and uh, and smoking and things like that, and just educating them more about all the ways that they can, you know, uh, take care of themselves, managing stress, massage, you know, dancing, those kind of stuff, you know, integrative medicine being, you know, incorporated into conventional medicine. I think that's the way to go. We have about a minute or two left, but is there any last comments that you would like to add to our interview? Yes, yeah, certainly. I think what I would like to add is to um, tell the people out there, practice self-care, eat healthy diet by increasing your fruits and vegetables, exercises, it's awesome, aerobic exercise, anything that can increase your heart rate, 30 minutes a day, you know, five days, uh, 150 minutes a week, um, you can spread that out, but if you cannot meet the 30 minutes a day, 15 minutes, you can start with 15 minutes and work your way through. And so actually, um, that would be something that I would say, don't be too uptight, reduce your stress, relax, and have fun. Thank you for your emphasis on such key aspects and your precious story. Um, thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Omar Rabi. Thank you for having me, Eunice. It was a pleasure talking to you. Yay! Okay, I just need to Yeah. <laughs> Every week, Tom Francis brings us a weekly poetry interview. This week, Tom is talking with Aaron Everin, also aka Algorithm, about his poetry and his inspiration for his poetry. Here's the segment. Aaron Irvin, aka Algorithm, began putting pen to paper in elementary school and took the stage of the famed QE2 open mic on Central Avenue when barely a teenager. Since then, he's been all over the world, performing on stages big and small as a spoken word artist and rapper. In 2012, along with Dee Collin, Elizabeth, Eliza Gordon, and Michael Elliptical Sloman, Algorithm represented Albany for the first time at the National Poetry Slam in Charlotte, North Carolina. In our conversation, we talk about writing as a form of therapy, keeping work personal, and his life now as a teacher. We start our chat by listening to Stillborn, a poem that he hasn't read again since it was recorded at the Low Beat on October 2nd, 2018. 
I asked Aaron where this poem came from and what has changed in his life since then. These are not tears pouring down my cheeks over children I wanted but never had. During spring, the dandelions bathe in acid rain when I walk by. The environment will not survive. But I just love to read my poetry to the open sky. I can hear the birds clapping as they depart from my words that will forever chase them into the wild. I've learned that there is dignity in being loyal to something you believe in. Those ideas, those words, are bouncing off every leaf, branch, and trunk while being soaked into the roots of a tree that will echo truth into the soil of our future. It, it it's a it's a very deep deep history with me and um about um abortion and how I feel about it and how angry I was about abortion and um you know just describing like you know how how just things wouldn't survive my anger you know from you know about that situation that happened. And um, just trying to come up with ways to express how it actually affected me. I don't normally sit down and write a piece where it's like, all right, I'm going to write about this. It's normally just a feeling. And I guess I had that feeling that day and I wrote it and and, then it just came out. Brings me kind of chills, you know, hearing that stuff, because I don't think about I try not to think about that part of my life anymore. I try to move on and and see um, better and brighter days, you know. A lot of a lot has changed, you know. Um, just ways that I cope. Trying not to write and um, the same things or about the same things. It's like, all right, I had that feeling, I had that emotion. It's good that I had that emotion. Let's try to write differently now, you know. Let's try to to move forward. So that's where I'm at right now in my life. I wasn't at the moving forward stage at that point in time. I'm at the moving forward stage right now in my life. Would you consider writing a form of therapy? The writing is a form of therapy to me. That's all it's ever been. It's it was it's always been about getting it off my chest and getting it out of my mind so I don't have to constantly dwell on it. Once it's on the paper, it's like, all right, it's there. If I want to go visit it again, I can go visit it or I can just leave it in that book and that book will just be there until I open it up again. (laughs) (laughs) I asked Algorithm when he started writing and what it was like coming out to open mics and then poetry slams. I think my earliest memory of me writing poetry was around 11 or 12 and you know, silly stuff like, you know, about crushes on girls and stuff like that, flowers and just really innocent stuff. And I think uh, 13 years old, I um, I actually went on stage. I was living on um, Lark Street at the time. I was 13. QE2, it was the QE2. <laughs> I remember going there. It was like 96 or something like that, yeah. 1996. And I went there for the first time and I was welcome and they were like, wow, this kid's young. And, you know, they kind of just welcomed me and like, hey, do your poetry. And then I remember just, you know, going over to Soul's Kitchen. I remember going over to um, 
Yeah, so I remember going to Mother Earth's Cafe. So like the early 90s was just like cafes and it wasn't really slam poetry. And then I remember, um, I think around 16, I did my first slam at the New Yorkans Poets Cafe. Oh, my, my auntie got me down there. She was like, hey, come down. There's a, I know a person that's at this cafe. And I was like, oh man, that's so cool. It's the New Yorkans Poets Cafe. And I remember going there just really not prepared <laughs> to get my to get my behind handed to me like I did but it was fun it was a great experience and um I don't think I um actually revisited slam poetry again until I I got with Nitty Gritty honestly it was about fun back then you know that's what it was originally about we would all go to the, to the we would all go to the spot and it was just about having fun it wasn't about competition it was like it was if it was competition it was friendly competition you know, and I appreciated, you know, we, we kind of got to write what we wanted to write, say what we wanted to say. There was, it was a, a true safe space at, um, at the nitty gritty. Um, and I haven't seen really a safe space after that because usually there's, a, I think poetry readings now, they, uh, they usually start off with like, well, you can't say this or talk about that or talk about that or talk about that. So I kind of don't go to these poetry readings anymore because I don't feel like they're safe spaces for me anymore. Aaron goes on to explain his writing style. I consider myself a street poet. You know, it wasn't always academics. I didn't get my, I didn't, I didn't develop my writing, my writing skills or habits from being in academia. I did it from living, you know, it's just going out on these streets, living my life and, and seeing different scenes go by. And I'm like, wow, let me write that down. And, and let me, you know, let me not internalize it. And we put it on paper so it doesn't get all so it doesn't fill me up you know because you know when you put when you see the when you see that the type of things that i've seen that we've seen as human beings you know and you're going to compartmentalize it and you're going to tuck it deep and it's eventually going to come back to bite you so it's like getting that those experiences out on paper it um it saved me you know and, and it gives me it gives me an opportunity to, to you know, I'd rather I'd rather give these youngins directions than just ignore their ways. With that style in mind, we circle back to the nitty gritty slam and being the first team from Albany to compete at nationals. What made the Albany team stand out from the crowd of seventy-two others in the tournament? We we definitely didn't conform. We definitely no. was nonconformist when it came to their style or to that particular style. I think we went there um, to have fun. I think we went there to have fun. And it was a very important accolade to achieve for us, for our city. So going there and being raw, being us, having fun, I think that was, it, was, it, was, it wasn't about winning. It was about being there, being in the moment, having fun with people that you enjoy being around. You know, it was about, we all, we, you know, we, 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 all of us, we argued, we, we laughed together and we created great pieces. We created crappy pieces. And we we were able to come together and 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 pull out the best in all of us, you know, from from coach to you know the administration, you know, you. I think I think we all pulled together to bring the best out of each and every one of us for that moment. And once again, it was a very important accolade to achieve. A few years ago, his focus changed, and he went from performing on stage to teaching students in the classroom. I asked if he uses his art as a way to connect to his kids. No, I do not compartmentalize when it comes to my classroom. I I enjoy 
my my students creative process on everything as far as like you know how they how they do math like i had i had a student show me something about math and i was like wow i didn't i never looked at it like that before and it's just always creative processes going on and that i'm involved in and you know i have some students that are great writers and i was like wow that's that's really awesome let's let's see if we can you know meet up and during lunch and work on that you know so there's always opportunities to to get the youth to work on their creativity. Algorithm can be seen on occasion at literary events and open mics in the area. And you can follow him on Facebook and Instagram. No, I, um, I, I write every day. That's, that's something that I do. I write every day. It's a part of me. It's my life. So, you know, it's just something that I do every day. Unless I, you know, I develop some sort of arthritis that stops me from writing. I'll yeah. figure out a way to how to type it down. You know, they have voice to chat now. So I um I write every day. That's that's just something I love doing. It like it's therapeutic. For Hudson Mohawk magazine, I'm Tom Francis. To hear more weekly poetry interviews, listen every Tuesday or go to our website, mediasanctuary.org to find more weekly poetry interviews. And that's our show. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk magazine. I'm Kaelin McPherson. And I'm David Moore. Our engineer is Kaelin McPherson. We want to thank all of the volunteers who made this episode possible. Contributors to today's episodes are Mark Dunley on headlines, Moses Nagel, Sina Bazilla Hickey, Eunice Jong, Tom Francis, and our two co-hosts, Kaelin McPherson and me, David Moore. This program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community for the community and is supported by independent donations. If you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. We want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Media Sanctuary or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand on our website and your favorite podcast platform. We appreciate you listening, and just remember, radio isn't dying. It's continuing to grow. Until next time.